Welcome to the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the Clubhouse with Shane Bacon. I am your host, Shane Bacon, and what do I always say? We've got a good one this week. I say it every time. Uh, Phil Mickelson joins the Clubhouse for the first time ever. A couple of lefties chatting about, you know, distance and his career and Tiger Woods and the match three and, uh, yeah, what he's got planned, not just for 2020, but beyond. And, of course, we touched on his Champions Tour successes and how he's done so well there early on. The guy's scoring average on the Champions Tour is 65 in two events. That's going to get it done. Doesn't matter what the golf course looks like. If you're averaging 65, you're probably going to have some success in any tour on this planet. So uh, really excited about it. I've been pumped to have Phil on for a while. And uh, and big thanks to Mr. Mickelson for making some time. Uh, Just a reminder, if this is the first time you're listening to this particular podcast, I have another podcast. It's called Get a Grip with Max Homa and Shane Bacon, also part of the iHeart Network. If you could swing over there and download, subscribe, uh, it's a fun departure from this. A little bit more two guys talking about specific subjects and a little less of kind of a Q&A with a particular subject each and every week. So get a grip with Max Holman, Shane Bacon. Check that one out if you haven't listened to it yet. Let's get to our guest. And we welcome into the clubhouse for the first time, Phil Mickelson. And Phil, I got to start. Uh, give me out of 100 where you weigh the happiness you felt seeing yourself as a final Jeopardy question and answer versus the weight of sadness when nobody got it right. Sad, sad, really. Uh, it was, I was optimistic and, and somewhat excited to <laughs> feel like I finally made it and be on Jeopardy and then to have nobody get it. It was like a huge letdown, total shot to my ego. And uh, it actually took a few days to recover. I understand that. That's not easy. You're sitting there. It's final Jeopardy, for goodness sakes. Everybody leaves with a bad taste in their mouth. But, I mean, do you get tipped off? Is somebody like, does somebody from the Jeopardy team reach out to your team and go, hey, keep an eye out on this? No. No, I just happened to see it. And, and some people started to uh, put it up on, on social media when it came out, and, I, and it caught my eye. Well, I want to get into uh, your recent play, back-to-back wins on the Champions Tour. Your scoring average in the two events, do you know what it is? By the way, it's 65 on the dot. I- I'd say that's uh, pretty salty. Uh, you and Back in January, you were talking a little bit about the Champions Tour, and you said, when I stop hitting bombs, I'll play the Champions Tour, but I'm hitting some crazy bombs right now. I know you were obviously joking a little bit with that statement, but what has changed for you and got you excited to get out to the Champions Tour, compete out there, and obviously have a lot of success? I thought that it would be, uh, I guess, I guess curiosity. I thought it would be an interesting thing to see, uh, kind of how the course is set up for me. And, and, uh, it was fun. What really happened was, um, I, I saw it as an opportunity. I was curious. I wanted to, um, you know, go out and play and see some of the guys that I had played against for many years. I saw a lot of them, a lot of guys from the, from the champions tour, at uh, Hillary Watson's funeral, and I got to talk to them, and I, it, it made me kind of miss uh, hanging out with them and seeing them. And they could not have been more welcoming and inviting and in, engaging. And um, it was it, it made me feel really good to be out there the way the the way they were. Now, keep in mind, you know, my first President's Cup was 1994. Tom Lehman was my partner. I hadn't seen him in a long time. Uh, I, I saw him at his daughter's wedding, but that was. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I haven't seen seen him very much. Corey Pavin, my first 
partner in my first Ryder Cup match in 1995. Haven't seen him in over a decade. He was my captain in 2010. And these relationships have gone on for, you know, multiple decades. And I missed seeing a lot of the guys and to see them out there. It's, it's been really fun for me. It's the guys that I grew up watching as a kid, guys that I ended up having a lot of great memories and experiences with. And the style of play, you know, the courses are not as short as I, I thought. Um, they're, we're playing the back tees on these golf courses. Right. Well, the only difference I thought, Shane, was the pin placements were, instead of being two and a half cases from the edge on a little knoll that repelled the ball <laughs> everywhere, like we see on almost every hole on the PJ Tour, right. these were five cases from the edge. And if I happened to get up, go after a pin and short side myself, I had enough room to get up and down and, and, and salvage my par. Very much like the courses were set up back in the 90s. But now, because everybody's trying to protect par in a way and prevent guys from going really low. It's not, not that it's helping or stopping. The pin placements are so tricked up. I mean, the RNAs are, are so tricked up. Pins you would never think of, you know, three feet from the edge of a, of a fall off, stuff like that, that uh, we don't see on the champions tour. And it allows me to play more aggressively and play the way I like to, rather than always being defensive and feeling like a good shot is 30 feet. I felt like if I hit a good shot, I could, knock down the stick and, and I allowed me to make me a lot more make a lot more birdies yeah I mean it, it sounds like you're you're having a lot of fun is it more fun than you thought it would be is it more fun than than even playing PGA Tour golf maybe different fun but it sounds like it's it's been a little bit more exciting than maybe you expected it to be it has been a lot more fun than I thought it's been a lot more re- relaxed yet still competitive I, I love the environment I actually really enjoy it and I think I will play more events however the fulfillment that i get from competing against the best players in the world is still what drives me and motivates me and at at the age of 50 what holds a lot of guys most everybody back is their lack of speed and my speed has stayed up i've been able to actually increase the last few years so there's no reason why i couldn't compete on the pga tour but i have to put it all together you know these guys hit the ball extremely long but they also hit it straight and if i'm driving the ball I, i have to drive the ball long but i also have to drive it straight to be competitive. And if I drive it like that, the other parts of my game, my short iron play, my mid iron play, my chipping, my putting, all of those parts are every bit on par or better than uh, guys on the regular tour. But, but they drive the ball so well that it sets up the entire uh, golf course. You know, it's like, imagine a par four into a par three and you're playing a par three where your drive is and they're 330 yards off. The so now you have 140 yard par three from the middle of the fairway. I've got 170 yard par three from the rough. That's an insurmountable uh, disadvantage that uh, over the course of 72 holes, you just can't do. I'm aware of that. I'm working on trying to fix that. And I've made a lot of strides. I've made a lot of strides in my driving, a lot of strides in my golf swing. Andrew gets and I have really worked hard on it and it's gotten better. It's not there yet, but it's gotten better. And the other area that I needed to work on was my putting and the putting come around. And I actually think that's been a very underrated part of why I've been successful on my first two champions events. And I putted really well. Yeah. I mean, you got to put well to make this many birdies and shoot these types of scores. I mean, I I've seen the, the news clippings, if you will, that sounds like a very old school thing to say, but uh, I guess the, the online articles about how you've played and the expectations of what's to come, Shane Ryan posed the question, should Phil Mickelson go for broke and become the greatest senior golfer ever? I know Bamberger brought up the idea of you announcing your intentions to you know, sweep the major championship season one year on the senior tour. What is your toe in the water on both tours schedule looking 
ahead to 2021, obviously with 2021 still being up in the air and what it's going to look like. But, you know, are you going to make a schedule of five champions events and the rest on tour? Have you looked ahead at that yet? I have not really looked ahead at the champion tour schedule next year. I think a lot of it will depend on how I play in the PJ tour. But again, my success on the champion tour has actually been because of my motivation and drive to work hard and keep my speed up to compete on the regular tour. And then when I transition and play a couple events over there, it's, it's allowed me to uh, have a huge advantage distance wise uh, and attack these golf courses. But um, I don't, I don't intend to do that. Uh, full-time, but I do intend to play a few of them. I just don't know which ones, and it'll be pretty uh, schedule-dependent as well as maybe course-dependent. It really is not going to factor in whether it's a major or not. That's not really uh, a criteria for me because, look, I don't mean to – I'm not I, – I love the Champions Tour and, and the guys out there and the competition, the ability to play and compete at this age like that's really a special thing that other sports don't have and i am very appreciative of that but the majors on 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 the senior tour to me um they're not like majors like the regular tour those are those are something really special and that's what uh uh i just don't look at them the same and so the the majors are not going to influence uh, which events i play in uh, on the regular tour or not yeah, well, we've talked bombs. You've mentioned speed a little bit. I'm going to quiz you here, and if you get this right, I really am going to believe you're like Mensa level with the brain. Do you have any idea what your driving distance was back in 1993, your full uh, first full season on tour? So my first full season, I believe I was uh, 25th in distance at wow. 269. <laughs> you're a nut. Does that sound right? How do you know this? 269.2. So let me throw this out. Tom Pritchard, I believe, led the tour at 274. Is that sound accurate? I've got Daly. Justin Ray of the 15th Club sent me this info, and he has Daly at 288.9 in 93. The tour average was 259.8. Obviously, those numbers have changed. Is this the biggest jump in, in any sport, really, in terms of how power has taken over you know, all aspects of the game? Because, I mean, 269, what are you hitting 269 now, Phil? So... A good three would will fly 275. So it's, uh, you know, on 15 in last week's champions event, it was 269 front edge, 275 hole, and I flew at 277. So, uh, yeah, it's just a good three wood now. Yeah, it's, it's just, it, it's just, so it's just interesting to watch this evolution happening. And obviously Bryson has changed this conversation, but I, I ask you, you know, the gap in terms of what it's looked like now in 2020 versus what it looked like in the 90s, and if this is all sustainable? So I would, I would say two things. You know, back in the 90s, uh, and I'm going to say pro- before the Pro V1. Now, granted, I think Callaway had the first solid core ball that really went, but it wasn't until the Pro V1 came out because they had so many guys playing it that it really changed because you had the ability to maximize distance and control the ball, uh, control spin. The longest guys back in the 90s, when they would hit it harder, the ball would spin more. I think the driver would spin 3,500, 4,000 RPM. It simply would not go longer. But the, so the short guys had the ball that was basically optimum for their game and the longer guys did not. And the Pro V1 came out and it started to reduce the spin and allowed the longer guys who swung it fast to, to have the ball that's optimum for them. And so they leapfrogged past the other guys and, and, and you saw the distance go up. Now, 
uh, I would argue that, you know, there haven't been like revolutionary changes like we've had right. when the Pro V1 came out uh, and maybe even the larger headed drivers. We've had evolutionary changes, like small little things here and there where, oh, this ball spins a little bit more and it's a little bit easier to control and it flights different, but not revolutionary like we had with, with in 2001. Uh, October of 2000, when the Pro V1 came out, so starting 2001, where everybody was using it, that was a massive change. And, and certainly the larger heads came out around the same time. The Big Bertha came out around 94, 95. And that's when the head sizes started to increase and allow guys to have a lot more forgiveness in the driver's seat. When we did a test on the, the distance increase and we put the ball and the driver together, we found out that it was about half and half. The ball attributed about half of it, and the driver attributed about half, and they came out at the same time. And so now you have the athlete that is getting better, and he has the equipment that's already optimum for him. So I don't think that in the last you know, 15, 20 years we've had this massive change in equipment, but we've had this massive change in the athletes, and the equipment is optimum for those guys to maximize their distance. And so we've seen the, the, the best athletes take off. And if you look at the guys on tour today, relative to the nineties, when I came out, the bodies are totally different when you look at them. You know, we focus a lot on Bryson here, but I feel like you were a guy that kind of led this charge. I mean, you were back in the early two thousands, you were a guy that was taking full advantage of distance. I mean, you were, it was more important for you to hit it as far down as you could. And I feel like that was followed by, you know, VJ doing something similar, obviously tiger, was always out there ripping drivers, but I feel like you were on the forefront of this early on, knowing that as long as you could hit it, as far as you could hit it down a fairway, even if you missed it, it was more advantageous for you to have a wedge or a nine iron in than have a seven iron in. I mean, does Bryson ever give you a little love for this, for kind of like paving the way? So it, it really wasn't me because I remember Jack Nicklaus saying the exact same thing. I'd rather hit a wedge out of the rough than a seven iron from the fairway. Like he, he had, he had that mentality from the start and I, grew up and listened to him and tiger was the one that forced me to try to get longer because he was so long and so straight that to compete with him uh and be 25 20 yards back in the fairway and, and try to compete with him was was going to be almost impossible so i had to get it up to his speed and so he was the one with his fitness that uh, really took it off however i don't believe it was until tpi came out and uh Tyler's performance institute came out and kind of around 2005 or so where the athletes started to train golf specific. And so I look at a lot of the exercises that Tiger did, you know, squats and lifting and so forth. They didn't really strengthen the supporting muscles of the knees, back, uh, spine and, and the shoulders uh, that pr- would protect them. And I think he's had a lot of surgery because of the, the torque that he's put on in those areas and never actually worked those smaller muscles. You look at the workouts now and they're designed to protect the knees, the spine, and the shoulders by strengthening all those little stabilizing muscles. And they're, they're smaller movements. Like they're not, you know, squatting 500 pounds. They're squatting maybe 50 pounds on an unstable foam platform that forces the surrounding muscles around the knee to, to stabilize. Then allows us to swing faster. And so uh, when, when 2005 came, and uh, roughly, and TPI came out and started training these guys properly and started uh, showing how to protect your body when you do swing fast, that made a big difference because I think the education wasn't out there when Tiger was going through his uh, fitness uh, program. And I think that led to a lot of injuries. And now you're seeing a lot more prevention of that. 
Yeah, I mean, you're a guy that, that's that's gotten into fitness over the last couple of years. What has changed for you in that world? Because, I mean, you even shared a picture on Twitter I saw, and it was the the Phil in 06 Wingfoot picture versus 2020 Phil. Obviously, you've slimmed up. You've spent a lot of time working on kind of your body and your approach to this. What has changed for you, and how invested are you in the ideals around what you're doing for your body and your fitness at 50? I probably didn't have the appreciation at, uh, in my thirties for how important it was to be, um, to be healthy, fit, train properly, eat properly. And then I ended up getting uh psoriatic arthritis in 2010 and it, and it changed everything for me because it forced me to be accountable for my own health, forced me to eat right, forced me to train, you know, a certain way, uh, forced me to lose weight and take pressure off my joints, forced me to get rid of inflammation in my body forced me to try to get my immune system balanced. So all of these things forced me to be accountable for my own health. That was the change in the emphasis that kind of got me started. And, uh, and then I started reading a couple of years ago about fasting and the power of fasting and how your body can rejuvenate and heal and your immune system can reset after a three day fast and, and all of these things. And I started to implement that into my routine, which, uh, helped me be overall healthier but it also helped me lose weight because obviously I'm not eating as much food. And when I do eat, my stomach is smaller. And, and so I ended up losing weight uh, because of that. But uh, all of those things kind of combined and it took a little bit of time to put them all together. Those, but it all started back 10 years ago when I, I was forced to be accountable for my own health. As you speak on this, and I think it's something we've seen throughout your career, is you're a guy that's curious. You're interested in new ideas, new processes, new things. I mean, this coffee for wellness is a big thing you're pushing right now. This is something that you've always done. And I feel like as, as people get older, especially men get older, the curiosity almost wanes a little bit, you know, not as interested in trying new stuff. Why have you always been this curious and has that ever gone away or are you always looking for something new? So I've always been looking for something new. It could be a, a better driver, a, a different club. Um, you know, I've got patents on multiple clubs uh, from my days when I was with Titleist, now Callaway, uh, trying new ideas and, and so forth. So I've always looked for something uh, potentially that could be helpful. And um, now it's been curious about overall health, like, you know, what to eat, how to eat, uh, fasting, working out, what exercises, how to increase speed, you know, overload, underload, all those things. You know, you talk about what Tom House did. And Tom House uh, was that famous pitcher uh, who caught Hank Aaron's, you know, famous home run ball. He was in the bullpen, but he was way ahead of his time when he asked the question, why do baseball players or pitchers get hurt and tennis players don't when their arm is doing the same motion? And, and he came up with the answer that simply the tennis players don't let go of the racket. And so they, they strengthen their deceleratory muscles uh, and pitchers didn't. And so he would train by overloading and underloading and having them throw a weighted baseball, but not let go of the baseball. And all of a sudden pitchers started not getting hurt as much. And he was way ahead of his time. And he started to apply that to golf with overload underload, which is was how I was able to start to get a lot of speed in the last couple of years was using his methods of, of training. And so uh, I've always been curious on, on things like that. And it's allowed me to uh, kind of maintain a, a higher level of performance because I'm always trying to stay up on newer, better techniques. And certainly my trainer, Sean Cochran, has done that. In fact, he spent 
a few years working with Tom House uh, and training at his facility. And he helped me implement those overload, underload. He's always staying on top of all the TPI certifications as well as the new techniques. And he's been a huge part of me preventing injury and being able to uh, have such a long career. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. I want to change gears for a moment. I got a question that I really wanted to ask you during the match, the first one in Vegas uh, with with you and Tiger uh, at Shadow Creek. I wanted to ask you specifically, the first time you heard the name Tiger Woods, you know, you guys, you know, grew up in the same area, if you will, of the country. And obviously you were this elite, unbelievable amateur player. Do you remember the first time you heard the name or even heard, you know, there's this young kid that's winning everything in Southern California? I don't remember the first time specifically. I remember when he won the U.S. Junior that uh, I started to hear his name a lot more. And obviously, when he won the U.S. Amateur, uh, he was became a prominent name. But I don't remember the first time specifically. Um, but you knew he was going to be good just because of the fact that he was winning and winning in such dominant fashion. I just, you just didn't know how good and, and uh, how dominant he would be able to be because the level of play on the PJ Tour was viewed as being so high already. How is he going to be able to come out and really better that by a significant amount? And yet he was able to do that. Yeah. When was the first time you guys played? Like, did you play in any amateur events, junior events, things like that? Or was it later in your life? No. So I'm five, five, six years older than he is. So we never really played against each other growing up. I, it wasn't until uh, we were out on tour that, that we had a chance to play together. Yeah, well, it, it's just it's it's been so interesting to watch the two of you guys kind of go throughout your careers. I mean, you win as an amateur on the PGA Tour. Obviously, he has that run in these USGA championships, and it was just Phil and Tiger. It was the Phil and Tiger show. And uh, and you, I was I was looking up some stats. You guys have been paired together thirty seven times. You shot thirty four under in those rounds over the years. That's second best only to Ernie Els. And uh, and I and I was listening to a Dan Patrick interview you you did. And it was really the relationship flip for you guys in 2016 at the Ryder Cup. And Tiger mentioned that you went out of your way to be super supportive of him when he was struggling with his golf game and his chipping. How has that relationship evolved? I know you get asked this a lot. I know you get asked about your relationship a lot. But how has the relationship evolved now to where you guys are both friends and guys that can work together in and around these matches that you put on? So I think it changed when we started to work together on the Ryder Cup kind of task force, if you will, to bring out the best play in the U.S. squad in the, in the Ryder Cup. And then when he was the assistant captain in 2016, we were talking quite often about pairings and playing and course setup and all the little details on how to be uh, or give the U.S. side the best opportunity to be successful. And I think that was where we started really working together. I, I have known for a long time the value of of him to the game of golf. He brought us from the back page to the front page of the, the USA today, which uh, was, was the paper back at the time. And he had the ability to uh, really increase the ratings and increase corporate exposure, increase persons. I mean, I remember Shane, when I won my first PGA tour event in 1991, the Tucson open, the entire purse was $1 million. <laughs> first place was 180,000. Now I was an amateur, so I didn't get, I didn't collect it, but, that was what the purse was. And I remember wondering at that time, if in my career, we would ever have a million dollar 
first place check. And I really didn't think it would happen. And then Tiger comes along and it, and the, the growth of the game of golf, the PGA tour, the interest in the, the PGA tour, the interest in television, uh, and all of these things, you know, really took off at a, a, a exponential rate. And we started to, uh, shortly thereafter play and compete for a million dollar first place check every week. I mean, it's, uh, it's been incredible. And so I've known the value that he's brought to the game. And, and uh, when he struggled a little bit, nobody wanted him to come back and, and get back out on top and, and play well more than I did. Cause I, uh, you know, was intricately involved in, in uh, kind of tagging along with what he was able to, to do for the game. And I was able to capitalize on it uh, probably more so than anybody. Yeah. I mean, and the match has been an example of this. I mean, you guys both have your different skill sets. I mean, I, I would say you are, you know, you're a, a more entertaining person to listen to talk when you're on the golf course. You're always kind of explaining what's going on and you're talking with whomever's walking around. I mean, I remember even at the match, you looked over at me, Tiger missed a putt, I believe on 15. And as we were walking off the green, you looked at me and you said, I wheeled that one out of the hole. I mean, you had like your eyes real big and you're all excited about it. I mean, you know, you, you guys use each other to produce these unbelievable golf events and we're going to have a third one coming up. Did you see this as a for lack of a better term, franchise? Was this something you felt like was going to evolve into what it is with the Barclays and the Bradys and the Paytons of the world wanting to be involved? Or at the time, did you simply just see it as, you know, these are the two biggest guys in golf playing against each other. People are going to pay attention to it. I think when it first started, I don't think we had that big long-term vision. It was just kind of, this would be something people would be interested in. Let's do it. Let's, let's create a little bit of excitement and, and have some fun doing it and do something together. It was kind of our first real partnership and kind of a business sense outside of the Ryder Cup. And uh, I thought we, we both thought it would be cool. After last one, though, that's when the, we, we kind of saw the long-term potential, like, wow, these could really be cool and could help the game of golf, but can also help other areas. Like we raised, you know, over 20 million for COVID relief. Well, that was, that was using the game of golf and, and, and athletes from other sports and the interest across the country in this great game and the ability to, to, social distance while we competed to raise money for a really good cause, just like we're trying to raise money for a really good cause here with social justice. And, and so uh, we're, we're uh, starting to see the vision for, for what this, what this can be. And, and, and it's exciting to, to create one or two events that kind of showcase this great game of golf, because we're in a growth spurt right now, because it's the only thing you can do, uh, during COVID to really stay safe, you know, sports wise. And you go out on the golf course, you can social distance, you can play safely and, and uh, have fun in, in, in a sports Gosh. environment. And so our golf courses have really kind of shown a lot more, uh, a lot more participation in play. And this, these matches kind of support that and kind of support the interest. And I'm hoping that we can keep these players playing and, and kind of grow uh, the participation in the, in the sport, which we haven't had in a long time. So you get Barkley as your partner. Now, I mean, I, I, I love Charles Barkley. I'm not sure there's many people on the planet that don't love the guy. But uh, have you talked to him? Have, have, you, have you seen the swing lately? I mean, I, are you nervous to have to hit some of these shots after wherever the tee shot ends up for Charles? So sure, certainly I'm nervous because we're going to play kind of a modified alternate shot, much <laughs> like we did the back nine where we're both going to hit a tee shot and then we're going to have to play alternate from there. So if he hits a bad tee shot and we have to use mine, we're going to use his next shot. So yeah, I'm, I'm concerned. However, I will point out 
<laughs> when I first played with Charles, and he was a member of the Phoenix Suns back in the 90s, Charles Barkley could play golf. Really? In the 70s, almost every round. He had no hitch in his swing. He hit the ball plenty long. He was a normal, he was a normal golfer and uh, shot between 74, 75, and 81, 82 every time we played. Wow. And never had a hitch in his swing, had no problem swinging the golf club. So um, the ability is in there. I just don't know if we'll get it out in time <laughs> for match three. I mean, I'm excited to watch. I mean, he was trash talking you guys the first match, saying he could come down there and compete. So now he's actually going to get the chance, and I think people are pumped. You know, I I've talked with with Max Homa on the other podcasts I do about this this in particular accomplishment. It was when Steph Curry shot that opening round 71 at the Safeway back in 2018. I feel like it's one of the more underrated athletic achievements. And people don't talk about it much. An NBA player shooting a round of 71 in professional golf. Have you played golf with Steph Curry? Do you know how good he is? Is he the best non-professional golfer athlete that you've seen out there over the last, you know, 20, 30 years? So of all those celebrities and all the the, the ex-athletes that I've played with, uh, I, I believe Tony Romo and Steph Curry are the two best that I've played with. Okay, They're clearly plus handicaps. Uh, they're on par with a like kind of mini tour level professional golfer, and they both have kind of a natural instinct for for the game. Know how to kind of read the, the the nuances of a golf of a professional golfer is like reading the lie. How's the ball going to come up? Distance control, being able to shape shots, being able to elim- eliminate half the golf course, and both of those guys can do that pretty effectively. And uh, you know, stuff's going to be tough. I mean, he's he's certainly not Tiger Woods. So Peyton is, is downgrading his partner <laughs> in stuff. It's, and, fair. it's a um, fair point, you know, Barkley and Brady. I don't know. It's kind of, seems kind of like a lateral move. I don't know. But uh, that, that, I probably shouldn't say it. Cause Brady actually, he can really play. Like I played with him when he, he lights it up and he's a great putter and, and he didn't have a chance to practice much for match two and wasn't at his best. But, um, uh, I feel like I feel like Charles and I are going to not only dominate this match, we're going to talk smack the entire way and and be laughing and giggling the whole time. <laughs> I need you to ask Charles at some point to uh to, to to get have his thoughts on a lie and just see what he says. Hey, what do you think this is going to jump? What do you feel like here? Is this what's what's going to happen with this lie? Yeah, I don't think we're 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 not there yet. Okay, we're not okay, there yet. smart. We're still working on the hitch. It's, you know? it's probably probably fair. You know, uh, Phil, you've been out on tour forever. You've seen all of it. You know, you've you've seen the the great young players that didn't make it. You've seen the the no name players that have won multiple major championships. Of all the things out there, of all of the parts of golf, mentally, physically, everything, what has been the one intangible that you feel like pro golfers have to have to be successful on the PGA Tour? So the, the one thing that I've, the one, if we're going to try to point down to one, which I think there are many, but the biggest difference between guys that get the most out of their talent and guys that don't is going to be their ability to control their thoughts. So what happens to a lot of guys is when things start going bad in a round, they start to see where they don't want the ball to go and they start hitting it there and they don't have the ability to re take control of their thoughts and focus on what they want to do. So that, that has led to, you know, a lot of final round collapses. It has led to a lot of guys turning a round of uh, 71, 72 into 76, 77. It might be on Thursday or Friday, but knock them right out of the tournament. You'll see it. It's easier to point out, you know, final round of a major, but, um, 
that's the one thing that I think the great players have the ability to to do is take control of their thoughts and refocus on what it is they want to do rather than continue to let thoughts of what they don't want to have happen into their mind. I mean, can you see this happening, Phil? Can you see a guy, either you're playing with them, you're watching it on TV, whatever you, the case might be, can you see the indecision and the uncomfortableness and maybe the the meltdown pending from players that, that aren't right there where they need to be in terms of the confidence and their ability to just slow everything down? Well, it's going to happen to all of us. We're all going to ha- go through these rough patches, right? But it's the ability to turn it around, retake control of your thoughts, start to refocus on what you want to have happen, and then start to execute those those swings. Those are the guys that ultimately win and are tough to beat down the stretch. There's a lot of guys that have uh, uh, struggled with, with that. And so they win, they still win tournaments when things are clicking and everything is going great. And they've got, uh, and, and they're firing all cylinders and all they're seeing is great shots. And that's all they're hitting. They get in a good groove, get in the zone and they, they end up taking that to victory. But the guys like tiger that are tough when they don't, might not have their best stuff and they hit a few bad shots, his ability to re take control of his thoughts and start to refocus on what he wants. That's what separates the really tough competitors, the great champions, the guys that have, high closing rates when leading after 54 holes and guys that don't. All right. I got some quick fire ones that I'm going to let you go. First one's pretty easy. What's the best Phil Mickelson Halloween costume you've ever worn? So it's been a while since I've been uh Halloween costume. Um, I would say in the 96 Phoenix open, I was one of the, uh, I was in the, ba- I was in a band <laughs> As a member of one of the bands, the famous bands at the time, what, I can't even remember the name of it, but uh, <laughs> like Nirvana or something worker. or what? No, no, no. It was like uh, there was a construction worker. There was a sailor. Y- the YMCA Billy Baker was a sailor. Paint, Paint Stewart was on there. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's the band that sang that. I mean, what are you? Are you musically? Are you? Are you musically talented, Phil? Do you? Can you play anything? No. Yeah. No. Same. No, no left, lefty's never good with yeah. the guitar. It's, it's, it's too hard. Who's the best Ryder Cup teammate you've ever had? So I don't want to single anybody out because I've, I've been on so many teams. Uh, I, I don't want to single anybody out. I've had some great partners uh, over the years. Uh, is, if you had a mulligan you could use on a shot in your career, what would the mulligan be? So it would be the 18th hole at Wingfoot in the U.S. Open in 2006, but it would not be the drive. It would be the second shot. Yep. Because the second shot was not that hard. I had a very tight, a, a tight, hard pan lie. There was nothing wrong with it. All I had to do was hit a, a cut three iron around a tree and get it up by the green. And I hit it a yard or two too far to the left, and it caught the tree limb, and then the ball shot left. If I missed that limb and get the ball started a little further right, the ball's going up by the green, if not on the green, and I'm going to have a chance, a, a very easy up and down to win the golf tournament. What's the highest MPH is you ever hit on a radar gun? So we did not have uh, we did not have TrackMan and and uh, these quads <laughs> and all the launch monitors my entire career, and so early in my prime in my 20s and 30s, I did not have that information. But uh, at last year's Masters. I was, I hit 125 point something. uh, And that was as fast as I remember speeding the club. 
What's the fastest you ever threw a baseball? Did you ever hit anything in like the eighties? I'm going to go with 68, 69. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I was not uh, going to blow anybody away with my fastball, but uh, I had some, uh, I had a good splitter. That's good. What was the best champions dinner meal that, uh, that has ever been served and you've been a part of? Huh? That's, uh, I, I actually thought, uh, I think it was uh, Cabrera had some Argentinian meat that was phenomenal. And I realized that all of the older guys, they just want a steak. So when I came in with like a lobster ravioli, they were like, yeah, just, just give me a steak. So they didn't even eat the lobster ravioli that I had made. They, they had to make the steak. So, so I started just doing that uh, for the next time or two that I won. So that, that's your suggestion that next time somebody wins a master's, just steak, potatoes, let's make it as easy as possible. Like nice red wine. Yeah. Yeah. Cause all the old guys want that. <laughs> uh, do you have a particular Phil flop shot that comes to mind as the best one? I mean, you know, there's, there's plenty to pick from, I'm sure. But is there one you hit that you always kind of go back to is like, that was the toughest, best one I pulled off? So there's one I've seen a lot on social media, which was the 18th hole at TPC Boston. Yeah. I was down by the hazard and I hit one. And I don't think I've ever hit one more vertical or as high as that one. That one was ridiculous. It was almost like a jumper, like the ball jumped straight up rather than like a pure flop shot where it comes out dead. Um, but that one was, uh, that one was ridiculous. I actually remember one on seven at Valhalla going TJ championship in, uh, 1996 that I hit that was, uh, about as ridiculous as one as, as I've ever hit also. Um, but, um, that one at 18 at TPC Boston was, was a really good one. Yeah, I think I was doing PGA Tour Live for that. And I believe we replayed it about 87 times. I'm not, I think we didn't show live golf for about half an hour after you hit that shot. It was like, let's just keep showing different angles. This, was, this is going to be the best thing that comes out of today. That's, uh, that's how impressive that was. So, yes, I, I, I remember that one vividly. And I, sometimes when I close my eyes, it pops up. That's how often we played it. Um, who, what is your dream practice around grouping for, uh, for your game it's a Wednesday. You get to throw three guys in there that you always love playing with. And I, this isn't to single anybody out. Just who are the three people you'd throw in? Uh, I really, really enjoy um, playing with uh, Keegan Bradley and uh, Brendan Steele. Like those two guys, like I, I laugh. And um, I've had some good matches with uh, John Rahm and Xander. But, um, you know, Keegan, Keegan makes me laugh uh, about as much as anybody. Wow. I, I think it's his quirkiness. I'm not even sure what to say, but every time I'm around him, like I laugh and giggle and, um, I just, I, I can't, I can't play without him in the group because, uh, that it's, it's really fun with him. Yeah. All right. Well, last thing I'll do, and, I, and I'm going to let you go. I did want to ask about your TV appearance at the PGA. I was messaging with you about it a little bit and just, uh, I thought you obviously, as everybody did, I thought you were really impressive there and you seemed really comfortable. Was it tougher than you thought it'd be? Did you do you have a better appreciation for the booth now? And is this something that at some point in your career you are interested in maybe getting into? I think that uh, I was surprised at the feedback. I was surprised how positive the feedback was because I was just kind of articulating what I saw, and so it, it came. I thought it came very easy in the sense that I was just you know saying what I saw. So I didn't think that it was that insightful per se. But I guess that I just see things that others don't like. 
the grain of the grass and then how is the ball going to react? And if the ball, if the grass is wet, you know, the ball's going to skid. I, I remember a shot that Jimmy Dunn, who's one of my favorite people hit at number three at Augusta. And, and he hit the ball down left and the thing was over to the left and he was going to try to hit a flop shot and it had just rained and the grass was wet. And I said, Jimmy, the rye grass is wet. Okay. Normally when it's dry, it grabs the ball. It's sticky. I said, but it's wet today. Why don't you just bump it into the hill? It's going to skip right through that, uh, uh, right up the hill. And he said, really? Okay. Well, he gave it a try. The ball skipped right up the hill and it went in the hole for, <laughs> for an eagle too. And I just thought that uh, like it's little nuances like that chain that, that are just kind of like second nature. Like I don't understand how that's not common knowledge, but it just isn't. And so when I articulate that, I don't feel like I'm saying anything insightful, but to a lot of people that haven't, played golf professionally and haven't played their whole life and spent so many hours practicing uh, like I have, it might not be common knowledge to them. And so it, it, it uh, was something I enjoyed doing. However, competing and playing golf for a living is what I really enjoy and what challenges me and, and keeps me motivated and working hard. So I'm not, uh, I'm not sure that I'm ready to do that yet or, or that I really want to. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's no replacement for someone that is coming right off the golf course into the booth. You know, anytime you have a player that played that golf course and has a chance to react to what they've already seen with their own skills, right? I mean, you were on the golf course. You know what the place was playing like. That's really hard to replace in terms of insight. And that was something you brought to the broadcast. And I think that is a is a huge advantage if if that was something that you could routinely throw in. I mean, if you could just randomly have players come in after if they'd be willing to do it, it would give a different insight, you know, from somebody that that is observing from a booth and and hasn't had a chance to go out and play that golf course in that day's conditions. You know what I'm saying? You're exactly right. I mean, that's a, a huge insight into sharing with the viewer what is what what is happening, what how the course is playing. Uh but I don't think you really need to um to be having to be on the golf course, to be able to have that insight. I mean, it's, you can use simple math by just looking at a greens book and say, look, the greens pitch at 3.5. They're rolling 13 on the stem. Their ball won't stay there. So he can't leave, you know, the ball's not, it's going to run 10 feet by. He's, you know, this is the best he can do is over here. Uh, if he misses the right, he, he's not going to be able to get up and down. I mean, that, that, that's just simple math. If you just kind of look at a greens book and, and you know, and you're able to read those numbers. Um, or see the rough, or or just uh, I, I don't see I don't feel like you have to play the golf course to be able to articulate that if you have that information there and you know you know what you're looking at. Totally. Well, Phil, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for uh, for taking the time. Anything uh, new for you upcoming? I mean, you know, you you got the social media world a buzz all the time now with what you're doing there, and you're always rolling out new videos. Anything new on the horizon in 2020 or 21 for Phil Mickelson? Uh, not, not really, uh, other than things we've discussed, you know, trying to play, compete, uh, trying to, uh, get, uh, get ready for the masters and, and, you know, compete in the match and, and get my, get my man, Sir Charles, uh, get his game <laughs> sharp and ready and competitive. Uh, I mean, all these things, I, I, but I'm having fun. I mean, that's the big thing is I'm having fun and I'm enjoying it. And I, I don't know what the next chapters are going to bring. I don't know if it's going to be commentating, if it's going to, if I'm going to be able to stay competitive or be competitive on the PJ tour or the champions tour or, or what, or if I'm going to do, you know, some 
more social media or just, I, I don't really know what the next chapter is. I just know I'm having fun at, at all the things I'm doing. Well, I appreciate the time. You guys, uh, you guys have a good drive and I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Shane. We're going to take a quick break and be right back. A big, big thanks to Phil Mickelson for all that time. 40 minutes. I, I couldn't ask for more. And I was uh, I was very, very happy with him jumping on and joining. You know, I, I, I got to tick on another Hall of Famer on the podcast. It had been a while, and uh, and I was happy to to throw another name on there. It's like a pegboard, you know, where the top 100 courses you play. Uh, and, you know, Gary Player's been on. I'm trying to think. Is it Phil? That's, that might be it. That's Jewel Inkster. You know, I think Jewel Inkster Hall of Famer. Maybe Zinger, Curtis. I'm actually a few more than maybe I thought. But uh, that doesn't matter to anybody except for myself. So, uh, big thanks to Phil for doing that. If you like the show, if you're a fan of the podcast, tell your friends, tell people you don't like, and uh, and rate and review the show. That helps out, uh, you know, getting the word out. It helps out people finding the podcast. So rate and review it. It takes 30 seconds, 60 seconds. That is all. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. I'm recording a podcast this week for next week. So I know there'll be one with another exciting guest who actually has had a a relationship over the years with Phil Mickelson. So that'll be next week. You guys enjoy the weekend. Weather is getting good on the West Coast. I'm assuming it's cooling off up north. Uh, but stay warm, stay safe, and uh, hopefully you get out and play a little golf. The Clubhouse with Shane Bacon is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.